Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 17th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to go and talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is the entire team for once in uh, a few weeks now. We have Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writer Swytran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, let's get into this. Um, the most, Let's talk about what we've been doing. Uh, the most interesting thing that I did this past week was I went to Universal Studios Hollywood's Halloween Horror Nights 2018. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, they have these events uh, at theme parks and around the country where basically you go and you go into these like haunted houses, which they call mazes. And they also have like these scare zones in between the haunted houses, which are kind of themed. And there's a bunch of atmosphere and people are, you know, running and jumping out at you and stuff like that. Um, Universal, I think, kind of was one of the big pioneers of this back in the day with their Orlando uh, Halloween Horror Nights event. Uh, I know that that is considered to be one of the gold standards. Universal Studios Hollywood, just like uh, the theme parks in general, is you know much smaller and not as uh, grand in production. <laughs> um, but I enjoy these. I've been going to these since I've... Uh, moved to LA. Uh, I'm not a big horror guy. Like, uh, I know Chris and, uh, Jacob are huge horror guys. Um, but, uh, you, you know, I think I probably, uh, skip more horror movies than I actually seek out that come out in theaters. Um, but I do enjoy going to these events because it, it really does put you into the movies. I, you know, I, I am a big theme park guy. I love the immersion aspect. Um, and I love being able to step into these worlds. This year at Halloween Horror Nights, they had uh, 
nine different eight or nine different attractions considering if you uh if you consider the walking dead attraction that's always there as one of the mazes uh then it would be uh nine uh but uh probably the best one that i experienced is this year they had a maze based on the season one of stranger things which was really cool to walk through kind of the events of that season and you know to be in the upside down while eleven is taking oh is there spoilers for for stranger things I don't know season one was two years ago you're fine <laughs> as eleven is taking out the demigorgon uh in the classroom it, it was it was uh probably not the scariest maze uh but it was probably my favorite and the best uh, for me. Uh, I think that is one of the big problems that Universal Studios has with these events is uh, in the Hollywood version, uh, eight out of the nine houses are based on pre-existing horror IP, whereas in Orlando, uh, I think five out of the ten are based on the horror IP. So they have five original mazes. We had one original here. And what that means is good it's part good and part bad. The good is that uh, you get excited to go to these mazes because they're based on things you know of and you are excited for and you, you want to come face-to-face with uh, Demigorgon. You want to come face-to-face with Mike Myers. Like You, you want to be in these worlds. But the bad part of uh, having all these IP-based mazes is they, for the most part, stick to the storyline of the movies. So there isn't a lot of creative... Uh, room that the universal creatives have to play around in uh, you know presenting fun scares and stuff they're kind of just uh, adapting it to a walkthrough experience if that makes any sense um so one of these days i want to get to orlando i i enjoyed this uh you know there has been a lot of criticism in past years of this event has gotten too big and bloated and the lines are too long and uh walking through the mazes have been like, you know, the too many people in the mazes. So you're kind of like in a line in the maze and seeing all the scares happen before you even get to them. Uh, this year, I think at least my experience, it could have been a fluke, but they staggered the people into the mazes more. And it was more of a, uh, you felt like you were actually getting your money's worth, um, out of the mazes. The, the scare zones themselves are a little dis- more disappointing for me, but, uh, I had a lot of fun and I'm going to go to the not scary farm event this week. And I will have a comparison article on the site that you can read and, uh, find out all my thoughts on, uh, Halloween horror nights, uh, but yes, so uh, Chris, you uh, you've been away in Toronto. I sure have. I was uh, at TIFF for the last few days last week, um, and it was great. I think I have like postpartum depression now because I spent the whole year thinking about going to TIFF, and now it's over. And it's like, oh, all right, back to the grind. But um, <laughs> but Toronto is great. I love going to Toronto. It's great for many reasons. For one thing, you know, it's Canada, so everyone is very nice. For another, Donald Trump isn't president there, so that's a big plus. Uh, and, you know, just, just walking around Toronto. I mean, I, I live in, like, the suburbs, so I, I don't really get much of a, a city experience. But when I'm in Toronto for, you know, for TIFF, it forces me to, you know, walk around and take, you know, public transportation and all that stuff, which I don't really do uh, normally. So it's a, it's a nice change of pace. And it, it and, feels like a clean version of New York City. It does, and it's it's not nearly as 
conge- I mean, you know, New York City, uh, when you try and walk around there, it can be a little overwhelming where you're, you're, you feel like you're like being herded like cattle into areas. But Toronto, it's, it's a little more open. It's a little less uh, congested. Even during the festival, when it is very crowded, it's not it's nowhere near as crazy as being in New York. So it, it's. It's, 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 it's a blast. I look forward to it every year. Um, I drove this year, which I think driving actually has finally cured me of my fear of flying because, uh, uh, like the, the first year I went, I drove and it didn't seem bad. The second year I went, I flew and it was much shorter. And then this year I drove again and I just kept thinking about how much quicker it was to fly last year. And so I think, wait, so uh, how long does it take to drive? It takes a little over eight hours. Um, which, you know, I don't mind a long drive. I, I got an audio book. I got the audio book on the making of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I, I was able to listen to the entire thing, both driving there and back, which was fine. But driving there wasn't bad. But, man, that drive home, uh, you know, it was like it's like 7 o'clock at night and I was still on the road. And I was like, all right, this this is it. I, I, I have to – I'm over my fear of flying forever because this isn't worth it. So thank you, long drive to Toronto. You cured me of my fear of flying. <laughs> well, only flying to that location. Yeah, I mean, yeah, an hour flight, I can do that. Uh, anything longer, I don't know. I'll, have to, I'll, have to, I'll see how that goes when, when the time comes. Well, uh, you can read all of Chris's film festival reviews on the site. Uh, we've talked about them previously on this podcast. And as your film festival experience has come to a close, someone's film festival experience is just about to begin. Jacob, tell us about it. Yeah, I've been preparing for Fantastic Fest in here in Austin, Texas, and if you've been reading the site or following me, uh, you know that this is a festival I go to every single year. I think this is year nine I've been to Fantastic Fest, and it's the largest genre film festival in the United States. It is just this incredible lineup of crazy movies from all over the world. Uh, the only issue is that this, this year <laughs> is... is uh, Let's see, another member of the Slash Film team is taking their vacation while I'm on Fantastic Fest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which means that uh, I am having, like, daily panic attacks. Even though I, I know the team will be fine with me being only half present while I'm covering the film festival. But I'm doing the best I can to prepare and, like, send out emails and get contingency plans in place. Because as managing editor, uh, for those of you who want to know how the sausage gets made uh, on a movie website, my job is to uh, hear ideas from the, from the staff, um, help shepherd forward ideas, take care of the schedule, edit posts, and just make sure the site is operating on a day-to-day basis and we have things to go up. Uh, and with a certain someone who shall not be named going on a going out <laughs> of the country on a vacation, uh, it means that poor Brad has to essentially do my job plus his job with Peter's help uh, for the days that I'm gone. So as I prepare for what's honestly my favorite week of the year, I also have to, like, it's always an edge in my brain that someone is making my job much harder, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, I kid. We're, we're, it's it's going to be great. Um, it's my, it's, we're just so many awesome movies playing this year. And just looking over the schedule today, I keep finding little, little things that are jumping out at me. Like a movie about uh, Laika, the Russian space dog, who in 1957 the Soviet Union launched into space. Uh, and famously, Laika died in space because they couldn't get the dog back from space. But this is a Czech stop-motion animated musical about what happens if when Laika actually goes into space and lands on an alien planet and makes friends there. So <laughs> the fact that I get to see this movie is insane, and this is why I love this film festival. And I'm very, very excited uh, about br- bringing that and word of other really strange movies around the world to you, the le- uh, readers and listeners. Uh, but beyond that, 
I went to a murder mystery party over the weekend. My sister and her husband f- throw these every few months. And you haven't done these before. You get assigned a character. Uh, so, and it has full of little details about who you are, your motivations, what you want. And there's a setting. This uh, time it was a Wild West saloon after a poker tournament. Wait, wait. Are you doing this over like a friend's house? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, my... my um, my my sister and uh, her brother and her uh, my, my brother in law her husband throw these at their house. Uh, I'd say maybe every four to five months or so. Now, who constructs this setting and like storyline? Oh, there is no setting. I mean, but you can find the storylines uh, online. There's tons of them available. Search for murder mystery parties, and you, you just print out a bunch of, of sheets and you handle all the characters. And everybody gets a sheet saying, "Here's who you are. Here's how you should dress." And some people follow that. Some people don't. I just wore a cowboy hat. I ignored everything else in my list of <laughs> wardrobe recommendations. But then it tells you. Hey, you need to go around this party, talk to this person, make sure they know this. If someone accuses you of this, deny it. And they give you a list of like protocols, essentially, that encourage you to go out into the party, mingle, and meet. And so the idea being that even though you're playing a character, uh, you don't take it too seriously. The whole goal of the party is to be in a room full of other people with a list of uh, character details that encourage you to go out and meet everybody. So I was playing this degenerate gambler. Uh, so my job was to, <laughs> was to not... Uh, let myself not be found out as a cheater. So my instructions say things like, if you are accused of cheating, deny it. You know, So with somebody who somebody else's paper said, you must go find uh, Jack the Gambler and accuse him of being a cheater. So when that person found me and said that, I had to like, loudly deny, saying, how dare you, sir, accuse me of being a cheater. And at some point in the night, somebody is murdered, and, somebody, and then everybody else gets a second envelope with, with post-murder details to add more fuel to the fire, and one person's a Wait, murderer. How, how is it determined who is the murderer? Oh, it literally says at the bottom of their of their character sheet, at some point tonight you'll be murdered. And the party host <laughs> goes to them, okay, time to murder you. And they put them down and they turn off all the lights, usually fly off a cap gun. Lights turn back on, the person's on the ground lying there dead. And the person who's dead takes on a new character, and it goes from there. And these are always fun. They're, 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 it depends on, like, some people take it really seriously. Uh, like, I have a friend named Laura. She's uh, eight months pregnant. She still showed up. She was assigned the town sheriff, so she gave herself a big, burly mustache, transformed her pregnant belly into a beer gut. And walked around like she was just really fat sheriff, but she's a <laughs> pregnant woman. And I, in fact, Laura and I have this tradition where we always try to inject nonsense into the games. Like, for example, a lot of people brought fake horses as props and tied them up by the front of the house. So at one point in the evening, I told Laura to go eulogize the person who was murdered. So she got everybody's attention while I stole all the horses and hid them in another room. And then started talking about how there was a horse thief on the loose. And everybody thought the horse thief was part of the written game when it wasn't. So we, just, we started sowing chaos about a horse thief that just caused chaos. And more people started getting searching for the horse thief and trying to figure out who is the horse thief and solving the murder. <laughs> even though it had nothing to do with the game. Uh, so that's how I play murder mystery parties. It's like creating chaos. But yeah, they're fun. And if you want a party that's like, it's like half group uh, get-together, get half you know role-playing game, just Google murder mystery party. There's so many of them out there. And they are fun if you get the right group together. I've always wanted to do something like this, and I, I, I've looked into, like, they have those, like, uh, what do you call them? Like, where you actually go, like, it's an event, and you pay to go, but, like, I've looked into, like, all the reviews of that, and it seems to be, like, really cheesy and not what you're talking about. This this sounds like the thing I want to experience. Uh, yeah, like, just get, you should throw one, Peter. I mean, go online, find a theme that you like, invite the right people, you know, uh, and host it yourself it, i mean it'll, it'll be low rent because you're doing it yourself in your home but that's part of the fun part of the fun is everybody brings their own little bits and pieces to the story and you see how everybody else reacts in the environment 
I've been to one of these before, actually. My friend had for his birthday party a murder mystery party uh, that was, I think, the same site that offers all these stories. And it was a pirate themed one, which is really fun. I was a tavern wench, if I remember. I can't remember <laughs> what I, I can't remember what my, my role was, except to like, I think, sew gossip or something like that. But it's a lot of fun. It's a, yeah, it's very low rent, but it's a, it's good with a really close knit, really energetic group of friends. Well, very cool. While you guys were doing that, Ben was at a concert that I, I was unable to attend. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, I went to uh, Lost Live, which was Michael Giacchino uh, performing or conducting the Hollywood Studio Symphony Orchestra at the Ford Theater here in Los Angeles this past Saturday. And it was basically just a run of a bunch of different songs that he uh, composed for the TV show Lost that was on uh, almost 14 years Years ago was when it premiered. So that's sort of like part of why they were doing this is it, it, you know, quasi celebrating this 14th anniversary, which is actually, I think, coming up in a few days. Uh, it was amazing. I've, I've actually seen two of these Lost Live concerts before. Um, the first one was the first time that I really like hung out with my wife. So that was kind of a cool thing. And, and then, um, you know, so I, I have a very perfect personal stake in this, uh, this show in particular, because it's sort of like what we bonded over early in our relationship so it's you know in addition to this music being some of the best music ever created for any property whatsoever and and having these you know soaring emotions and stuff tied to it it also has this extra level for me of uh of you know <laughs> my own personal marriage being tied into this so um yeah it, it was a trip experience. I actually ran into a listener. Uh, her name was Monique. She came up and introduced herself and said that she recognized me from Slash Film. She read our stuff and, and liked it a lot. And she listens to the podcast all the time. So I wanted to give a, a quick shout out to Monique and thank her for coming up and saying hi. That was really cool. She just, um, she just like recognized you out of the crowd? Yeah, I was just like taking pictures in the front of the stage and she was right next to me and said, hey, do you I, I think I'm sorry to bother you, but I think you write for Slash Film, you know, whatever. And I was like, yeah, that was that's awesome. Thanks for saying hey. So that was very cool. Uh, that's like one of the first times that I've been recognized in, in public for uh, <laughs> for Slash Film stuff. Um, hint, hint, uh, precursor to somebody else saying something very similar pretty soon. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, just uh, I guess I, I wrote up a big feature on the site today and actually put together some video of the concert and some of the highlights. Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cues, the showrunners, were there, and they were answering questions from the crowd. And um, you can watch the video. It's very long. It's like 25 minutes. Uh, but any hardcore Lost fan will probably find a lot to enjoy in there. Um, one really final thing that I wanted to say about this that was really cool that they hadn't done previously was a lot of the cast came out and... and um, sort of like a surprise nobody knew that they were going to be there but josh holloway and uh emily de raven daniel de kim and a bunch of others came out and they uh during the concert would actually read some uh scenes from the screenplays from the scripts from the episodes of the show and they actually had emily de raven reading uh we're talking about spoilers so i guess spoilers for lost i think this was the end of season three but charlie dies in that show and uh emily de raven's character claire is like charlie's love interest so they had her get up in front of everybody and read the uh charlie's tragic death scene and it was just like completely heartbreaking and i got that entire thing on camera and that's in that video so uh go check that out because it is um it's very moving and uh the music is great and um Giacchino also debuted uh, a piece of music from the bad times of the el royale score so that was pretty cool i got that as a separate video and that's uh, in that piece at slash home.com as well very cool and you mentioned that someone else got recognized for being on this podcast 
HT, tell us about it. Hi, yeah. Um, so I had the first person recognize me from podcasting, and it was a very re- weird uh, experience that flushed, flustered <laughs> me a little bit. It was nice, not weird, but it was just uh, something I didn't expect. But I was um, at the Landmark Theater in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, buying a ticket for a three, three Identical Strangers, which I talked about last week. And um, the ticket um, guy, the ticket cashier person, uh, was taking my was uh, selling me my ticket and said, oh, I thought I recognized you. I'm a fan. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Wait, so, so did he like see your name and that's how? He, he saw my name. Uh, I think he like, I, I, he saw, he, I think he recognized my face because I only said one ticket to three identical strangers, please. And then he um, basically like saw my name and it confirmed his suspicions. Uh, and was like, I'm a fan. First he said also um, Millennial Falcon, which is my podcast that I do for fun with two of my friends. And then he, yeah, said about slash film, and I was like, "Oh, thank you very cool. much." And I was, yeah, it was very cool. So I was, I was flustered, and then I ran away and didn't get his name. But I'm sorry, um, guy at Bethesda Landmark <laughs> at ticketing. You were very nice. I always find it interesting, especially with podcasts, how people recognize each other. I mean, I guess people follow people on social media, but I hear so many stories from like, uh, you know, the guys at Slash Filmcast, like Dave and Devendra, and like they'll be out in public, and someone will just recognize their voice. From like, you know, being like on a train with them and be like, wait, are you Dave Chet? You know, that kind of thing. And it's it just funny. Um, but yeah, this uh, happened to me uh, last year where I was at at my uh, local comic book store where they have a registry system where they, they enter, you ask for your names and keep track of your purchases in case you want to make returns. And a new employee asked my name. I told him and he pauses and goes, Jacob Hall from Slash Film. So <laughs> it, it, it does happen. It, it's happened a few times to me now, but usually at fests. But that was the first time a non-film festival environment where somebody randomly recognized me. See, I feel like Jacob Hall is a, a much more common name. But, like, if someone ran into HD, I think immediately they would be like, you're from Slash <laughs> if they if they knew you're from Slash um, Maybe it's my hair. I do have purple hair now, so it somewhat matches my Twitter profile. Yes. Um, well, we appreciate when people come up to us, uh, or, you know, I don't want to grand uh, say we appreciate Chris likes to run away from those kind of people, but, <laughs> well, I, I will say when I was at tip, someone did actually recognize me. So someone who wasn't a critic, so it was fine. It was fine. <laughs> it was fine. I, I didn't, I did not run away. I was like, Oh, hello. And then I looked at my phone. So maybe I was a little bit rude about it, but yeah, so it, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I appreciate it. So if, if you see us in public, come over, say hey, and you know, tell us uh, what you think of the stuff. Uh, you know, it's, even if you hate it, um, or not if you hate it, because we, we don't do that in person. We only do that on Twitter. Uh, okay, let's move on to uh, what we've been reading. Um, ben, what have you been reading? Yeah, so as Jacob indicated, I'm going to be leaving on Friday for a two-week vacation to Iceland and Ireland. And one of the cities that I'm going to in Ireland is Dublin. And so I read James Joyce's Dubliners, which is a book of 15 short stories that was published in the early 1900s. And um, I think I had read maybe one James Joyce book before. I don't even remember what it was. It was in high school. It was one of those that I was sort of forced to read. But this one I I decided to read, uh, you know, of my own volition because uh, I was going to this foreign country in this city that I'd never been to before. And I had heard that this book was sort of, um, and my wife actually bought it and she's getting ready to read it. She's probably going to read it on the plane as we're flying over there. But, uh, this book is, is very evocative of, you know, the sort of like naturalistic, um, uh, 
I guess, descriptions of the area. And, and it's very, like, not much actually happens in these short stories. They're just sort of people living in Dublin at this time and in, in the, you know, the early 1900s. Um, so I don't know if I would recommend it really for like the story or the narrative or anything, because it doesn't really have one. It's just sort of like a bunch of um, unconnected short stories collected together. But it, it, you know, overall, it sort of paints this picture of the city and and of these uh the working class at the time and what these people's lives were like and what they were doing. And um, it's very specific with its locations and imagery and stuff. So I feel like I'll, you know, I got a lot out of it in that regard, getting ready to go to the city. Like I'll probably recognize certain landmarks and stuff from the book um, that I may not have otherwise. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to give a, a quick shout out to Dubliners, which it's very, very short. It's only like 150 pages or something. So um, if anybody wants to, to fly through it, it probably won't take you too long to read, but, uh, and some of those short stories, man, are pretty rough, but, um, but, but other ones are good. I mean, it was a very mixed bag. It's sort of like an, anthology like a like a abc's uh or like the vhs movies or something you know where there's a movie where there's a bunch of different uh short uh shorts that sort of comprise the whole thing so um yeah obviously some are, are better than others but uh but yeah that's james joyce's dubliners I'm interested to hear after you get back from this vacation how much all these things like these books, these movies uh actually you know paid off in some way for your your actual yeah, trip. Yeah, it, I don't know if it's like I, I'm basically just doing it to sort of get in the mood and like extend my vacation a little bit, you know, on the front end of things and sort of make it feel like I'm there already. Um, so I, I'm not sure how. Yeah, it'll be interesting when I get back. Maybe I'll try to try to look at everything through that lens. And if um, if anything particular in particular stands out, but uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, I haven't been reading anything, but I did add this to the list of things I've been reading uh, because uh, I uh, have been listening to this podcast, Inside Jaws. Have any of you listened to this yet? You know, I know there was an Inside Jaws podcast. I've heard of it, but never listened to it. Yeah, it's made by the company Wondery. Uh, it's they created, they did uh, Inside Psycho and Inside the Exorcist, both of which I have not heard. Um, but basically, I've only listened to a few episodes of this, and it was on. You know, we were driving a far distance, so we needed something to listen to, and uh, it's kind of done in the same way as that other podcast I think you mentioned. Uh, Ben a while back uh, about Hollywood where oh, it's the secret histories of Hollywood yeah it's presented kind of like a radio play in a way where there's sound effects and you're going through the experience of young film uh, 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 young Steven Spielberg leading up to you know making Jaws and I'm sure it gets into Jaws but the the first few episodes are kind of like uh, you know a Cliff Notes version of uh, the Steven Spielberg origin story. Um, I think at times it's a little um, bit more obvious, especially for people like us that kind of know these uh, these moments in Steven Spielberg's life. And it's kind of uh, expounding on them in a really obvious way. Like, I don't think things probably happened in the way because he's like dramatizing, you know, moments from uh you know like Spielberg breaking onto the Universal Studios backlot um for instance and i i i doubt things actually happened anywhere like the way it's presented here but it's uh it's it's an enjoyable listen and i would uh you know if you like podcasts you're listening to this podcast you might want to check it out uh it's called Inside Jaws and uh let's move on to what we've been watching um let's start first with Chris Chris 
you saw, saw a bunch of stuff at Toronto, but uh, you talked about most of it here. Tell us about some stuff that you did not talk about yet. Uh, yeah, one film I did not talk about because I saw it after I did the the podcast on TIFF was uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which is uh, incredible. This this film really blew me away. Uh, you, you know, I am by no means a a Netflix hater, and in fact, I'd rather you know nine times out of ten, I'd rather just stay home and watch stuff on my TV. But it's a little. Uh, upsetting that this is technically a Netflix movie because this demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. It's just, it's gorgeous to look at. Um, there was this weird trend. I noticed this year at TIFF where a lot of the films were shot in either extreme close up or really boring, like medium shots, you know, which is like, you know, from the waist up on people. And this whole movie is shot in this like gorgeous, uh, almost like every, every shot is like a tableau. It's like this gorgeous visual where everything Quran uses every single inch of the frame to, to paint this, the, you know, this picture he's telling. And it, it, it's it's a phenomenal film. It's a little slow, and it was so slow that when it started out, I was a little worried. I was like, uh-oh, is this going to, you know, is the whole movie going to be like this? But eventually, it settles into what it's trying to do, and it, it gets really emotional and really powerful. And, like, the entire row of people I was sitting with by the end, including me, where we're just, like, sobbing uncontrollably when, when this movie ends, so... Um, it is getting a limited theatrical release when it comes out, I think, next, in November. So if, if it ends up playing at a theater near you, I really recommend trying to see this in theaters because it, it's, it's just stunning to look at. But if not, even if you end up seeing it you know, only on Netflix, it's still going to be, be good. It's not going to you know, be less of a good movie that way. And now that you're uh, home, did you get to watch anything else? I did. I finally watched um, Ocean's 8, which I just not did not get to see in theaters. And it's fine. Um, <laughs> the cast is great. Uh, it's a fun movie. You know, it's very entertaining, but it really wastes, I'd say, like 90% of that cast. You know, as great as they are, they don't really have a lot to do. Like Mindy Kaling has almost nothing to do in the movie. Even Kate Blanchett, who, you know, was all over the marketing, really doesn't have much to do in the movie. Um, so that was a little disappointing. I, I wish someone would make another movie with this cast and give them all a lot more to do. Uh, that said, Anne Hathaway is fantastic. She's probably like the best part of the movie. She's very funny. And uh, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed it, but it's, it's, it's disposable. It's a forgettable film. Like I doubt I'm ever going to watch it again, but you know, for what it is, it's, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. I agree with that assessment. Uh, let me talk about a lot of the stuff that I've been watching lately. I, you know, I mentioned in the past that I'm a big fan of Better Call Saul. And, uh, you know, I don't bring it up every week because I'm watching it every week. But uh, I did want to bring it up this week because a recent episode was directed by Andrew Stanton of Pixar fame. And he's been doing a bunch of TV recently. He did some episodes of Stranger Things. And he did an episode of this. And I think he's doing some other stuff. And uh, I'm loving the fact that uh, we're getting... You know, to see more of Anderson's work uh, on a more uh, often basis than, you know, every five years, the typical uh, development cycle of a Pixar film. Um, and uh, he's a good director and uh, he's he's a good TV director. Uh, the other thing I want to say about Better Call Saul, and I guess this is a very minor spoiler, is um, one of the things I love about this show is um, – 
you know, this season, a lot of what this season is about is them, uh, or one of the subplots is them explaining how this underground lab that is introduced in Breaking Bad came to be. And literally, this is something that they could have just, like, explained in one line of dialogue. It could have been something that, you know, they could have just explained, of oh, it was something it was already there. But it, it's kind of like this plot hole that they are milking in excruciatingly fun detail like it, it is like they don't need to do this but they're they're coming up with a completely logical explanation of how this thing came to be in a way that uh i, I don't think they was necessary and it's just so enjoyable uh chris are you caught up on better call Saul? i am yeah and uh yeah i i agree it is amusing that they're taking so much time to develop this lab, but I'm also enjoying it a lot. Yeah. It's it just how the logistics of it, how everything's explained. It's just uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I also got to see an early screening of Jonah Hill's directorial debut, uh, mid uh, mid nineties, I guess it's called. Um, it, uh, I think, I think it's one of my favorite movies of this year so far, guys. It's uh, a coming of age movie and in the, um, vein of like a Richard Linkletter film so it's very short on plot and more on you know these characters and the experience of it not to say that it's like you know uh it's not like slacker where it does lacks any plot but uh, it's more like boyhood if that gives you an idea and um it's a it's a very impressive directorial debut it feels so authentic and uh relatable to me you know i you know i was never a skateboarder i didn't uh you know grow up with parties and drugs and drinking and all that uh but everything in this movie is so insanely relatable uh everybody i think like you know at one point in their life found their family of friends and it's this movie is kind of about that and it's uh you know i I'm not sure if I mentioned it on this podcast, but I, before I got into writing about movies, I wanted to make movies, and I made this film called Escaping Reality, a feature film, uh, and uh, it was never released. Uh, I wrote about it on SlashFilm.com. I'll, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, but it was a coming-of-age drama. It, it was it ended up, really, being a horrible movie. <laughs> but uh, I think everything I wanted to say in that horrible movie, I think Jonah Hill says in this film in a way a more profound way than i could have ever have done it's just such a great uh i don't know it's such a great movie and it takes place in the 90s and i think it kind of nails all the kind of touch tones of that era like uh, just all the clothes and all the music and everything and trent reznor and uh atticus ross score is is good understated though it has a lot of soundtrack to it there's a lot of moments of silence but it's it's very an enjoy very an en- very enjoyable and uh yeah so i i really recommend go see mid 90s it is presented in that four by three aspect ratio which i know when it started some people in the crowd were like what's going on here uh it's kind of strange to see that on the big screen nowadays uh but uh yeah um I've also been watching, I started, uh, you know, last week we talked about, uh, Ben brought up the fact that I go to IMDb to look for TV shows to watch, look uh, to find, uh, you know, in peak television, find some of the stuff that rises to the top to check out. 
And here's one of the times that kind of did me wrong in a way. <laughs> um, I found this show called The Sinner. Okay. So uh, we start watching this show called The Sinner. Uh, and it uh, some of the episodes are directed by uh, Antonio Campos, who is the guy. Camp, Campos? Campos? Uh, who d- did uh, Simon Killer and Christine um it it's very well directed it's 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 a good sh- it's a really good show what um i guess the show could uh well what i was watching what happens uh not to give too much away what happens in the first 5 minutes of the show is a young kid like 11 year old kid kills his mother and father while they're on a trip going to Niagara Falls uh, he, you know, poisons them and kills them. The show uh, stars Bill Pullman as a, a detective, and uh, it, it's them investigating not necessarily who did it, because who did it is answered in the first five minutes. Uh, it's developing, uh, answering why it happened, and there's a lot of twists and turns and in true kind of like true crime uh fashion so if you like any of those kind of true crime kind of shows i highly recommend this but i uh, a few episodes in we kind of came to the realization that we were watching season two of the show called the center and not season one uh luckily this uh show is an anthology series and you don't really need to see season one to get season two but that that main character of bill pullman uh is a detective in season one uh, investigating a different, entirely different case. I think there's some references and stuff to some stuff that happens in season one, but so far it has not come into a big play. And I've done some searching, and they're basically like, yeah, it's its own kind of complete uh, story. So, uh, Chris, have you been watching this? I saw the first season. I have not watched the second season yet. And um, I like the first season. The first few episodes are better. Then the last few, it sort of runs out of steam. But I do like the the idea of the show, where it's it's not a who done it, it's a why done it, where you know you instantly know it happened, and you have to figure out why it happened. So I like that setup. Yeah, and I don't know. I'm I'm really hooked on this. I think we started watching this at like ten o'clock at night, and we were you know still watching episodes at one in the morning. We were like, we got to go to bed. It's a very binge worthy show. It's a it's a show on USA Network, which I think you know still kind of has a stigma to it of like people don't like consider it good television even though it has Mr. Robot and Suits and you know some good shows like The Center um but I I highly recommend it you can watch it on USA Network on demand uh, and and I I don't, I don't know I'm really enjoying it maybe maybe it goes downhill but it seems like at least from my uh my investigating the reviews for season 2 are much higher than season 1 so so Chris you might want to check it out. Uh, but, Jacob, what have you been watching? I watched my favorite movie of the year last night, and if anything tops it, <laughs> I'm in for a, a great wave of joy. And that movie is uh, Mandy, uh, the new film by director Panos Cosmatos. I saw his first film, Beyond the Black Rainbow, at Fantastic Fest years and years ago. And this film feels like an extension on what he was building there, but it's so much more. And it feels like it's a movie that's a lot of people, I think, are prepared to watch it ironically because it's Nicolas Cage, you know, modern-day Nicolas Cage in an over-the-top revenge story. But this is a movie that is so hard to explain because I can could, I could tell you the entire plot right now from beginning to end, and it would not change how you 
would feel watching this movie and actually experiencing it. And I don't think you even watch it as much as the movie happens to you. It is just this visceral, odd, nightmarish thing that's happening and surrounding you and getting in under your skin and through your brain. And the basic gist of the movie is Nicolas Cage plays this lumberjack in 1983 living with Mandy, the uh, lo- love, of his li- uh, love of his life. They live out in the woods in this secluded house. And Mandy's targeted by this cult leader uh, and this gang of hellish bikers. And uh, what ends up happening to her leads Nicolas Cage's character, Red Miller, to go on a path of revenge. And even though if I like to lay out the plot of how he gets revenge or how he seeks revenge, or it's not like I'm describing a pretty standard movie. But this is a film that does not take place in our world. There are no highways. There's no, there's no like, there's very little modern technology. There's no one ever calls the police and something goes wrong. This is essentially, it feels almost post-apocalyptic. It feels like it's a fantasy world. It feels like it's just alternate, alternate realm. It feels like a, a dream state, this really bad nightmare where all the conveniences of modern life, all the systems that exist to support you and keep your life comfortable don't exist. And so once you acknowledge this movie does not take place in the real world, it takes place in this fantasia of horror and fantasy and whatever else Cosmatos wants to throw at you, you kind of get on its vibe and it takes an hour to get going. It's a two hour movie. The first hour is very slow by design. It's lulling you in. It's taking its sweet ass time to get you in the right mood. It's using color and sound and music to hypnotize you and bring you into the movie's wavelength. And then the second half happens where Nicolas Cage, with barely any dialogue, delivering maybe my favorite Cage performance of all time. In the past, I've written about how the John Wick movies feel like they were designed to take a mental list of, here's what Keanu Reeves does well. Let's build a character in a movie that plays to all the strengths and his weaknesses. Mandy feels built from the ground up to say, Nicolas Cage is a very special actor who's often misused. Let's build a character in a movie that will showcase everything we love on Nicolas Cage and let him use all the things he likes to do in ways that are powerful and moving. There's a one-take scene in this movie where his character is in the bathroom uh, and grabs a bottle of alcohol and has a freakout. And some people, I think the audience, start chuckling at first. So here's Nicolas Cage freakout. Here's this wacky moment with Nicolas Cage. And you start realizing after a scene goes on and on and on, this is not funny. It's Nicolas Cage channeling such raw, humiliating emotions, like emotions that most actors would be, would be ashamed to dredge up on camera, and he's spilling them out in front of you. And this is before you get the chainsaw fights, and before you get to like the drugged-out, trippy acid sequences, before you get to these hellish landscapes where characters descend into what appears to be hell on Earth to do battle in landscapes from heavy metal rock album covers. I, this movie has seeped into my brain in a big way. I wrote a big article about Mary Poppins Returns this morning. I kept on thinking, man, I should watch Mandy again. While I was writing about Mary Poppins, that's why I, I didn't want to watch write about Mary Poppins. I wanted to watch Mandy. Uh, I, I have not felt this way about a movie since Kill List, Ben Wheatley's second film, and I am overwhelmed with like joy and terror at this movie's mere existence. I am thrilled by Mandy. Well, very cool. Uh, you know, even more so than you saying this is your favorite movie of the year, you saying that this is Nicolas Cage's best performance ever has me excited to see this. Yeah, well, I also, I guess to move into something that's not quite as good, I also saw The Predator, and it's fine. It's uh, I feel like Shane Black is taking, he's using The Predator as an excuse to make a, a, a splatter comedy full of his typical snappy dialogue. But I agree with the rest of the Slash Home crew that the ending doesn't work. It's fun until it's not. 
The ending really falls apart. The last half hour is bad. Uh, I think Sterling K. Brown is pretty great in it. I wish he had more to do. But it's, oh, man, it's it's a missed opportunity, albeit one that I had a lot of fun with for the first maybe 80 minutes or so. I also saw Hackers. Has anyone else here seen Hackers recently? I saw it like a year ago uh, with my girlfriend who had never seen it. Um, yeah. Speaking of mid-90s, <laughs> Peter, is this the most 90s movie ever made? It has so much skateboarding and so much bad slang and so much terrible fashion. And so and Penn Gillette was... as a IT guy. <laughs> yes. And people misunderstanding computers and how computers work on the most basic fundamental levels. It is, it is amazing. Um, it's streaming on Amazon Prime. And I want to say it's it's a bad movie, but it's one that's so of a t- of its time and so such a such a bizarre time capsule miracle that I recommend checking it out. And finally, because I've been going on for way too long, I watched Ultimate Beastmaster season three or the first half of it. And I talked about the show on the podcast before. It's a uh, physical uh, stunt course show uh, on Netflix, pretty much American Ninja Warrior, but it was an international cast from different countries. Uh, it's on Netflix. And this year, they changed up the format. The courses change a lot. They've changed the way they do the finals. They've changed the way the, the rules operate. They've changed the lineup of countries. And I'm not so sure how I feel about the lineup, lineup of all the rules and all the changes. I have nits to pick with that. But this is the Great British Baking Show of Athletic Competition Series. because It's so warm-hearted. Everybody's having such a good time. Everybody's happy to be there. The countries are all supporting each other, all cheering for each other. Uh, it's a show without a negative bone in its body. And even when people are winning and losing and egging each other on in the right ways and the wrong ways, you get the sense that there's this uh, compassion for everybody here. Everybody on the show, uh, the contestants and the uh, commentators, from each, from, each from all different countries, all seem to be ecstatic when somebody else wins, sour when somebody else loses, and, and they have each other's backs. And it's the ultimate feel-good show for meatheads. <laughs> and uh, So if Great British Baking Show is always a little bit too light and fluffy for you, but you want that same warm feeling. Uh, this is definitely a show worth checking out. Very cool. And that's on Netflix right now. HT, what have you been watching? So I saw A Simple Favor, the mystery suspense film starring Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. And it's directed by Paul Feig in his um, uh, attempt to, to break serious. And um, I realized about 20 minutes into the film that this is not a serious film at all. It's actually basically a Paul Feig comedy and very much um, has this weird satirical undertone to it, despite being a more darker film than we're used to seeing from Paul Feig. It's, um, it's kind of a weird movie. I don't really didn't really know what to expect of it when I was going in, except that it was kind of meant to be a Gone Girl knockoff in the vein of Girl on the Train. And um, it Definitely succeeded at being Gone Girl, but more fun and almost felt like a self-aware ode to Lifetime movies. So I've watched a lot of Lifetime movies in my in my life, uh, just often in the background. And I find them really fun and silly and trashy. And A Simple Favor feels like an elevated Lifetime movie in a sense. It's trashy, but it knows it's trashy. And while it feels like um, a sort of hodgepodge of all these influences, it also doesn't really care. It it's it's having fun with it essentially. You will have fun if you watch this movie, especially if you see it uh, while drinking a fifty foot glass of wine. So it's <laughs> it definitely was like a very strange movie, but I I had so much fun with it that you don't really care. Um, it has a lot of twists and turns. It it's um 
And Blake Lively is great in it, actually. It's, uh, I think, a really great emergence of Blake Lively as a character actress, which it sounds weird to say, but she is really... She does a lot of she does, does a lot of things that you don't really expect okay. of her, and she's. Um, I think we kind of saw hints of that when she she started in the Shallows two years ago or last year, and here she gets to really play at being a, a sociopathic uh, beauty, which is really interesting. You know, I I know everything you're saying you're saying in a positive way, but I, I'm just listening to it and it, it all sounds negative to me it's fun i mean honestly it does sound weird because like i know lifetime movies aren't the aren't a thing for everyone it's a it's a certain brand of camp that i think you have to enjoy it's definitely not a movie for everyone but it's a movie that if you have if you have like a a degree of just like <laughs> expectations for what this movie will be uh then i think you will enjoy it well cool what, what else have you been watching um, I'm also kind of, another movie, which is uh, a little bit on the campy side. I watched Netflix's live action adaptation of Bleach, which is an anime series, which was one of my favorites when I was really into anime back in the mid 2000s. And, um, so Bleach follows this, uh, ordinary high school kid who has the ability to see ghosts and spirits. And he's kind of delinquent. He has orange hair, which he dies in this movie. And uh, one day he um, gets attacked by this giant monster called a hollow. And he sees this uh, reaper, a Shinigami, who is um, a woman in a kimono and has this uh, long samurai sword uh, trying to defeat this monster. And she gets um, mortally injured. And uh, she basically gives him her powers and he becomes a soul reaper. And uh, he is... it. That's basically the premise for it. The movie takes a much simpler approach, this really grandiose, really complex mythology of the anime. And I think it was a really smart thing to do because it has... Um, at first, this, a lot of the stories aren't really intended to be adapted to live action. I think Bleach was actually kind of a perfect adaptation for a live action film because it's a, it's a relatively simple story. It's a kind of grand fantasy thrust onto this ordinary guy and um it also knows exactly what it is it has its great campy moments and it has these ridiculous fight scenes that almost border on wuxia at some point and it it has fun with it and um it also pairs down the the story into a much more simpler much more personal story and it works really well instead instead of trying to tackle the the really dense mythology of the anime series in general so i had a great time watching this it was fun <laughs> way to revisit this anime series that I haven't watched in a long time, but uh, I was a big fan of it when it came out. But I, is it still going? I don't think it's still going. I think it ended. But it was one of those anime series that, like, along the lines of Naruto and um, Sailor Moon that was hugely popular and went on for way too long and had a million filler arcs, but uh, had a really interesting mythology that I don't think you see a lot in uh, a lot of anime. And it seems like Netflix is trying to do a lot of animated adaptations. So I'm curious how this is going to pan out for them. Um, but you uh, also started another Netflix TV series. Yeah. Um, I stayed in a lot this weekend and I watched the first episode of American Vandal season two. I didn't get to do the whole binge yet, but I really uh, enjoyed season one. I think we've talked about this before. It's a really, it's a great series that surprisingly gets uh, deep into um, the high school experience and has a surprisingly authentic depiction of the social pressures that come with um, 
growing up as a high school student, despite being an elaborate dick joke or in season two's case, uh, an elaborate poop joke. And this is kind of funny to me because I also, I really hate scatological humor. Um, I <laughs> can't stand, it's just like a personal thing. I hate, I hate poop in general. I get very like grossed out at just the sight of poop. So I was very nervous about starting this episode <laughs> in this season. Um, and I did have to like watch through my, my, my fingers a little bit just because I get, I get very, um, I don't want to say triggered, but it it stink it um it affects me a little more than some people I think, but it's it's a really great start, and I'm excited to see where season two takes us. Ben, you also started watching season two. I did, yeah. I think I'm four episodes in at this point, and I think there's only eight episodes total in season two, <clears throat> and I am really digging it so far. It's not as good as season one, I think, although the premiere episode is is especially good. Um, but I think overall, I mean, it's it's so hard to talk about the show being halfway through when there's when it's so short like this because you know if the last four episodes are amazing then it, it's going to raise my estimation of the season by a tremendous amount so I, I guess i'll just say that uh that i started it and if you enjoyed the second the the first season you're probably going to enjoy um at least huge chunks of the second season uh from what i've seen so far so maybe i'll come back on um in, in a few weeks and talk about uh you know finishing it up and and seeing uh, how we go from there and what else have you been watching? Uh, and then one last thing is I uh, rewatched Star Wars The Force Awakens. It was on TNT last night. And um, hot take, guys, that movie is pretty good. I, I actually love The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. I don't know. It seems like there's uh, there are all these camps online now where you have to be one or the other. But um, both of these movies are really, really good. And uh, The Force Awakens, I mean, especially you know, covering it or watching it from the way that we've covered it on the site and knowing all of the production problems that it had and like the deadlines that it had and how JJ Abrams wanted a little bit more time, but Bob Iger really wanted to keep the Christmas release date and all that stuff. Like, you know, watching the movie under through the lens of the restrictions that the filmmakers were under makes it even more impressive because it's just a great movie on its own. Um, and, and the fact that they had to do it all under such tremendous pressure um, really makes it even better in my in my view. Uh, I watched this because the um, scene at the end uh, at uh, Octo, the planet that that Luke is on at the very end of the movie, is uh, filmed at Skellig Michael, which is this island that's off the coast of Ireland. And I'm hoping if the weather permits that my wife and I are going to be able to actually go and visit there uh, when we go on our trip. So uh, I'm planning on watching, rewatching The Last Jedi right before we leave as well, just to sort of get back into that uh, ge geographical <laughs> mindset and um, maybe see if I can uh, bring my video camera out there, maybe a drone or something, and get some some video and and um, hopefully get a whole Jedi experience if uh, <laughs> if it's not raining too bad because you have to take a boat from the uh, the mainland to actually get out there. So um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Do, do they let you do a drone out there? I don't know. I, I I'm not sure. I I know they let people bring a, a ton of cameras and stuff, um, so I know I can get some video. But I'm I'm not sure about the drone. I'm gonna I'm gonna like scurry it away in a backpack and maybe see if I can get away with it. See if I can sneak some drone shots while I'm out there. Are, are you and Amy gonna recreate scenes or picture or like images <laughs> from the last uh, from? Uh... I mean, maybe I don't know. I, I I've seen like if you go on Instagram and just look at the uh, the hashtags, there are people out there doing like hardcore cosplay stuff, and that's not really my thing. <laughs> um, I, I've never really gotten into that 
at uh, that world as much as, you know, there are definitely people who are really great at it. So I, I'm sure all of the greatness has already been captured there. Uh, uh, so it would be silly to even try. But, um, but you know, maybe we'll uh, <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll reenact some of the uh, the easier moments that don't require like full length costumes or anything. I don't know. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching? Oh, yeah, I'm on this podcast, too. Yes. I forgot. That's crazy. Um, I've seen a lot of stuff actually. Um, so one thing that I watched, uh, it un- unfortunately was the Netflix original movie Sierra Burgess is a Loser. Uh, if you haven't heard of this movie, it stars Barb from Stranger Things. Um, and it's painted to be this, you know, kind of quirky, uh, underdog coming of age teen romance kind of thing where, um, you know, it's it's the the character is supposed to be this girl who's not you know not really considered to be all that attractive, and she's bullied and has trouble with boys and that kind of thing. And then she, by happenstance, she ends up being texted by this boy that she finds is cute, which also uh, happens to be Noah Centineo from To All the Boys I've Loved Before. And so he's texting her, and she. Uh, text him, but she realizes that he thinks she's somebody else, but she continues to pretend to be this girl who is one of the girls who bullies her, and so she basically just starts catfishing him and thinks that he's her, and you're supposed to like be okay with this, and it's supposed to be charming and cool, but it makes her seem like a sociopath. Um, it's It seems like its heart like was, like the people who made this movie, like their heart was in the right place, but they didn't realize how weird and unsettling some of this stuff is uh because the movie was ser- there's there's moments in this movie that are just infuriating and like it makes me hate the character and it's just it was extremely frustrating and i was i was so upset with how this movie turned out and that was on netflix right yeah it's on netflix uh so, so, so don't watch it on netflix I, I yeah i wouldn't recommend watching it it's just it, yeah it's, it's so frustrating i just ugh, yeah um but i also saw the nun which was fine for what it was funnily enough like i found myself thinking that this was almost kind of like a a gothic horror superhero movie of sorts because of um how taisa farmiga's character operates and especially the ending uh i don't want i won't spoil what happens but like the, the final like showdown i guess you could say really doesn't feel too far removed from the kind of uh, showdown you see in superhero movies between the uh, antagonist and the protagonist um and like when you see the movie or if you have already that you know what i'm talking about and it just it felt it didn't really feel as much like a horror movie as i wanted it has a lot of cheap jump scares and it's i think it definitely has it's done a disservice by not being the one like thing that's quote unquote based on a true story it feels like far too much is fabricated um and sometimes it just feels goofy in a way i don't know i i was disappointed i didn't hate it but it just it doesn't measure up to the rest of the movies uh in the conjuring universe i know jacob adored this movie and like i think the the ambiance is there and like corn hardy knows how to set a story up and like give it you know style but the the movie itself and how the horror unfolds was just really disappointing to me (laughs) Well, all I'll say is that the final moments, the the, the final moment between the nun and uh, and Tessa Farmiga will be a moment I argue for 
when we make our best moments of the year list at the <laughs> end of the year. Because it's totally crazy, and I love it. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also saw, I finally got around to seeing Black Klansman. I've just been dragging my feet on seeing that one, so I'm, I'm late to the party. But it is fantastic and infuriating all at once. Uh, John David Washington is an incredible actor. There's times when he sounds and acts just like his father, Denzel. Um, it's it's almost odd, and sometimes you feel like you're watching young Denzel, um, but he does have a di- sort of a different uh, swagger about him. But sometimes, you know, when he, he puts on his his the attitude and things, you you can tell he's Denzel's son. Uh, but he was great in it. Adam Driver's fantastic. Tover Grace was you know good as David Duke too, which you would expect to be this kind of over the top ridiculous performance. But I think that it's the fact that he's so reserved and calm and casual about his. A, you know, grotesque racism that makes it that much more horrifying and unsettling uh, to see in, in this movie. But yeah, it's uh, it's so good. Definitely the best thing Spike Lee has done in in years. Um, and yeah, if you haven't seen it and it's playing near you, you should go out of your way to see it. And you also saw the Predator. I, I know we we talked about this yesterday or um Friday on the podcast. So uh, I'm not sure. Do, do you have anything more to say about? The no, movie? we don't have to dive in. But yeah, I w- go listen to that episode because we talk. Uh, about it much more, much more there, and you can get my thoughts. Um, I think I liked it more than pretty much everybody else on this podcast. Uh, I kind of just like let myself get lost in the stupidity of it all. But you can, yeah, you can hear about that on the previous episode. Um, and then on the TV side of things, I finally finished the first season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon. I started that and talked about that on here a while back, and it just took me forever to get through the show. Not because I didn't like it. But just because I would forget about it, I would get caught up on watching something else. And so I finally finished it. It's a, a fantastic show. It's probably one of my like more favorite recent shows um, just because the, I, I love the lead character so much. She, she's fantastic. And I, for me, as a comedy nerd, I love that it's set you know, in the world of stand-up comedy uh, decades ago you know, when things were different. And it's just, uh, it's just a very well-done uh, piece centered around this, this character. I'm really excited to see... Uh, what they do in the second season, especially because a friend of mine uh, apparently has a recurring role in a few of the episodes. So I'm excited to see him on screen in a show that I actually watch. <laughs> no, after I saw the first episode of that, I, I think I even texted you or whatever. I was like, Brad, you're going to like this show. Like, this is your show. Yeah, no, it's 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 right up my alley. And I'm so I, I hope season two arrives uh, sooner than later. I'm, I'm, I think it's probably will be November or December that it, it debuts. Um, and then I, I had this sitting on my DVR forever, and I finally started watching it while I was working and just had it on the background. Uh, it's AMC's Visionaries, uh, James Cameron's story of science fiction, where it's just him talking to various iconic filmmakers and actors who have been a part of some of the biggest and most successful sci-fi films and TV shows of all time, and just talking about uh, the various genres and subsects of uh, sci-fi, from time travel to artificial intelligence and space travel and monsters and all that stuff and it's it's pretty basic stuff for people like us there weren't a lot of revelatory things to be noted there even are some of us in there not us personally but like people we know like amy nicholson and matt singer are on the show as talking heads which is kind of cool um but yeah it's it's uh you know it's a breezy easy watch you know if you're a sci-fi fan you probably won't get tons out of it but it is cool you know, seeing James Cameron talk to Christopher Nolan and Guillermo del Toro and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and all of them uh, and kind of getting their perspective on stuff uh, and 
yeah, so it's if you get a chance to watch it, it's uh, it's a pretty cool series. And there's also a, a companion book that you can buy as well, which I'm thinking about getting. See, I feel like I don't have interest in the show, but I would much if like they released a DVD, which is the uncut like conversations between him and Guillermo and him and Nolan and stuff like that. I feel like I would want to watch that. Yeah, that, that's actually on a similar note. I've always I always wish that they would release the uncut conversations from inside the actor studio because those conversations are always like two to three hours long and they cut them down to like hour long episodes. And I've always wanted to see the full length talks from the from that show they should do that okay let's move on to what we've been eating uh, i'll go pretty quickly when, while i was at universal city walk going to halloween horror nights i ate at vivo italian kitchen which is a new italian place in universal city walk city walk in hollywood is doesn't really have that many great food places it's a very touristy place uh this is the first uh the, the, this is the first place I would give like a really good rating on Yelp for. Like it's it's very good Italian food. You know, it's not exceptional, but it's uh better than the rest of the touristy crap that you can find at Universal City Walk. The City Walk in Orlando is, you know, bigger and better than the City Walk in Hollywood. And uh, I am excited that my favorite uh, Mexican place there is actually going to be, uh, the, uh, while I was walking through City Walk in Hollywood, it looks like they're building it here and they're also building uh, whatever the place is called, but it's like the Willy Wonka like chocolate factory here. So it seems like we're getting the best of uh, what they had years ago over in Orlando. Uh, it's, just, it's just taking a couple of years. Um, and, uh, also, uh, very briefly, I'm on my diet. I'm not losing weight as much as fast as I would like. I'm considering going back on the keto diet, which I had lost 40 pounds, uh, last year on. And, uh, I'm kind of, uh, uh taking baby steps towards that. I think I'm going to start next week and I'll, I'll talk about that on the podcast, uh, uh, you know, in the future, Brad, what have you been eating? Well, I was able to get my hands on some new snacks, of course. Uh, and so one of the things that I found when I stopped at a 7-Eleven uh, to get some gas uh, was a new exclusive flavor of Pringles that you can only get at 7-Eleven. And funnily enough, they are seven-layer dip Pringles. Uh, they are absolutely fantastic. They have just the right amount of spice to them, and they honestly have somehow captured the flavor of seven-layer dip and put it into a single chip and <laughs> had some actual seven layer dip near me. I probably would have dipped them into it just to see what that, you know, would have been like if it would have been like double the seven layer dip, or if there would have been a noticeable difference. Um, but they're actually, they're, they're really good as far as the unique Pringle flavors that I found. They're probably one of the better ones. Um, and if you, yeah, if you can spot them at a seven 11, you should, you should give them a shot cause they're pretty good. And then also since it's September, all the Halloween candy is starting to pour out into stores. And there's not much as that I can tell as far as anything new, except I did find these new pull and peel Twizzlers, at least as far as I know they're new. Um, and they're they're packaged for individual trick-or-treat consumption, um, but it's black cherry and orange pull and peel, which I think pull and peel Twizzlers are infinitely better than regular Twizzlers. I um, the ones that are my favorites are usually the watermelon pull and peel, and uh, but these are pretty good though. I wasn't expecting black cherry to mix so well with orange. Um, I thought felt it was probably like more of an aesthetic choice since it's orange and black, 
uh, and it looks, you know, how like Halloween colors. But the two flavors together are actually pretty good. And I, as far as pull and peel Twizzlers go, it's uh, it's one of the better flavor options in my opinion. On, on our car ride to Comic Con, I learned that you once worked in a licorice candy factory. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> one of one of the summers between um, uh, my years in college, uh, I went back home and I got a job. Uh, working at American Licorice, which is the company that makes red vines and sour punch straws. There's actually a, they have a factory location in my town. Um, and since it was just a, it was a summerly hourly job, and so we were doing stuff like you know packing licorice uh, straws into um, the 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 big bags of the, the individually packaged straws, putting them into boxes. Um, we had to put like some of the bigger like licorice sticks into like these plastic jars. Some of it was like watching the assembly line. And making sure things didn't get caught up and like uh, kind of like looking out for like uh, they have the, in the system like it, it cuts the sour punch straws into different segments and it like automatically puts them in the packaging. And sometimes it would like get caught up or like it wouldn't get cut properly and you have to pull those off the assembly line and keep it going. So it was very much a, you know, just one of those filler jobs. But, you know, it got me money over the summer so that I could go back to school and have some extra cash. But uh, I always came home smelling like. Uh, sweet sugar and it made me hate <laughs> licorice for the longest time <laughs> uh, okay let's move on to what we've been playing because I know we're going a uh, little bit long here Jacob what have you been playing well I'm here for, with my regular Dead Cells update which I've talked about the past few times I've been on the show I finally beat Dead Cells and I thought okay I can go play other things now but beating Dead Cells unlocks a new mode in Dead Cells so now I'm, I'm playing Dead Cells again <laughs> um, on, on the tabletop I played a game of Cash and Guns, which is a game that I'd recommend to just about anybody listening to this, especially if you're a movie fan. It's a very fast, very easy, very simple, casual board game where everybody plays crooks trying to split up a bunch of loot following a, following a heist. And the game literally it, comes with a bunch of props. It's basically the Tarantino, the board game. Yeah. And it comes with, the game comes with a with a bunch of foam guns. And the, the chief mechanic of the game is that you either choose to load your gun or not load it. And on the count of three, y'all, y'all point them at people around the table for a standoff and try to get people to back down and not get loot or try to um, uh, act like you have your gun loaded or you don't have your gun loaded. And it's all about bluffing, all about choosing to load your gun and shoot the person at the right time to make sure they don't get what they want in the loot pile. It is incredibly fun. I play, I've played it many times. My copy's getting worn. I need to buy a new one at this point. I feel like it's, it's been used so often. But if you're a movie fan and you're familiar with the iconography of the game's playing with, there's no way you can't have fun with this. I mean, it can be also as clean or as filthy as you want. I played it with families and kids, but I also played it with adults who break out the, the Tarantino language whenever they play with these foam guns. Uh, Cashing guns is really terrific, and if that sounds like fun, and it should because you're, you're a human being and you like good things, you should play it. Yeah, it's a, a lot of fun. Um, I played a game called Seven Continent again. Uh, I think I talked about this on a previous podcast, but it's a open world ex- exploration game. I highly recommend it. I think I think it might only be available on Kickstarter, and that Kickstarter is gone. So this bit of the podcast helps nobody unless you already own it or know someone who owns it. But uh, if you do, go play it. It's 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 a lot of fun. Brad, what have you been playing or not been playing? Honestly, it's a problem with what I'm not been playing because I keep seeing everybody talking about the damn new Spider-Man game and it's driving me crazy because all they want to do is play it, but I don't have a PlayStation 4 yet. I'm I'm going to buy one 
next month. I can't. I couldn't afford to like to drop you know four hundred dollars on a PS4 Pro this month. But seriously, I swear to God, I'm buying a PlayStation Four next month, and like for an entire weekend, I'm just gonna sit and play that game because I keep seeing cool screenshots. I keep seeing videos of people talking about it and doing cool stuff on the streets in New York, and like I can't stand it. I need to play this game. I need to have it. So I'm gonna buy it next week or I mean next month and I'm going to just pl- play it and enjoy it because I-, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. <laughs> hey Brad, you should you should buy Dead Cells. You don't need any other video games ever again. I mean, I might. You've talked about it so much that it's it's actually intrigued me, so I, I might do that. You know, I I'm not a gamer at all. Like I have no interest in modern video games and seeing people talk about the Spider-Man game and watching videos uh, makes me almost want to go out and buy it. So uh, I, I just want to buy it so I can uh, thumbs up at random people on the streets. <laughs> I want to buy it. I want to buy all the copies Brad can get, so you can't get it. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, that brings us to the end of today's slash film daily. Uh, you you can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps as well as SlashFilm.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. We are looking for questions for the mailbag. So if you have an interesting question you'd like to see us answer, you know, send it to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com, and we should be getting it getting to it this week at some point. Uh, please go rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Peter, keep recording because I, I have a book in my hands. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even sure if people like this segment or not but uh i'm gonna go with it okay it's for us it's for us <laughs> just for us i've opened the book to a random page who wants to go first who wants the great first. truth hey ht you're what? an expert at handing out baloney disguised as food for thought uh, oh my god <laughs> <laughs> hey ben you're a human kite you got, uh, you got where you are with wind, with wind and pull. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, hey, Brad, uh, you started out your life as an unwanted child. Now you're wanted in ten states. Ha! Uh, Peter, when you lay your cards out on the table, it's a good idea for us to count them. Because uh, <laughs> you're a cheater. <laughs> I, I, I see. Chris, I thought that had to do with magic for a second. He, he, he's still playing his character from the murder party. <laughs> watch out watch out when Chris shakes your hand. He's trying to pump money out of your pocket. Whoa. Wow. All right. How long do you I, think how long do you think it took this guy to write this book? Twenty years. <laughs> this is a work of genius. This is like Ulysses. It's it requires study in schools. 